Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from sunny San Diego on site at the Alzheimer's Research Conference known as CTAD. It is Thursday, December 5th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Biogen just unveiled detailed data on its resurrected Alzheimer's drug. We'll break down what you need to know with the help of experts on the ground at CTAD in San Diego. Our colleague Eric Budman has a pretty great gig here at STAT. He basically travels the world, tracking down the most unusual, adventurous, and emotionally gripping stories in medicine. And he never disappoints. He'll join us to talk about his latest story involving a one-eyed mutant sheep and the quest to find a new cancer drug. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Helix, a population genomics company working at the intersection of clinical care, research, and genomics. Helix's versatile Exome Plus assay and scalable research platform makes it possible to perform population-scale genetic analysis and to uncover novel genotype-phenotype associations. Learn more about Helix's offering at helix.com stat. That's H-E-L-I-X dot forward slash stat. It is probably fair to say that this year's biggest story in biotech is Biogen's decision to take a once-dismissed treatment for Alzheimer's disease and file it for FDA approval. This week, at a big conference in San Diego, that story got a little more interesting. So to catch you up as quickly as possible, back in March, Biogen terminated two studies of a drug called aducanumab after concluding that they were probably going to fail in terms of treating Alzheimer's disease. Then, in October, the company shocked the world by saying that after inspecting the data, they now believed not only that the studies were positive, but that they were positive enough to convince the FDA to approve the drug. Now, considering the fact that roughly 100% of potential Alzheimer's drugs have failed over the past 20 years, that claim sparked some skepticism. And that's what leads us to San Diego, where Biogen finally presented some detailed data on aducanumab meant to strengthen its case. Good morning, everybody. So as you've heard, my name is Samantha Budd-Haberlein, and I work at Biogen. And I'm going to report this morning the top-line data from Emerge and Engage, which were two identically designed studies to evaluate aducanumab in patients with early Alzheimer's disease. Our colleague Matt Herper joins us to talk about what we learned, what we didn't learn, and what remains deeply confusing about Biogen's drug. Matt, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Matt... As we mentioned, there were a ton of unanswered questions coming into this presentation. What did we learn about aducanumab that we didn't already know? In broad strokes, not that much. We learned a lot of specific data points that kind of help fill in the picture. But the picture is a lot like what we learned when Biogen said it would make this decision. The standard here has traditionally been that you need two positive studies, but the FDA has said that it will consider a positive study and supportive data. In the high-dose group in one of Biogen's studies, there's a statistically significant benefit. In the other, there is not. They presented some analyses which were much clearer than what we'd seen previously about how they'd made a change in those studies that they think resulted in patients getting a higher dose. And they showed us in more detail what the curves of those studies look like in the patients who only got that high dose. And really, this hinges on whether does that count as strong enough supporting data to make the FDA take these two disparate results and believe that there's enough benefit to approve. Well, so and that's kind of the crux of Biogen's case here is that there's one study that looks ostensibly positive at that high dose group, Matt, that you mentioned. And there's another that is, you know, looked at, I would say traditionally, 
very, very negative. But Biogen sliced and diced the data a little bit and isolated a certain patient population that it says has a positive result. And thus, you know, if you zoom out far enough, the high dose seems to be an effective medicine. So that was what incurred a lot of the skepticism that we were talking about. Matt, do you feel like the added detail that Biogen presented this week did much to address those concerns or, or, or might actually have worked to convince some people who were on the fence or who were negative ahead of time? So I actually don't think they sliced and diced. It is post hoc. And so there are all sorts of problems, but they really only looked at one thing, which is after they made this protocol amendment, what do the data look like? I think they helped start to describe their case but I expect, should this get to an FDA panel, that there will be a lot more questions. And one thing that I found kind of fascinating about the presentation was there weren't any statisticians on stage. The clinical trial people who are going to raise concerns about this are not really about Alzheimer's. They're really about what happens when you stop a study early, and then you analyze the results, and some of the results are imputed, and you're relying on an after-the-fact analysis to understand whether or not the data are positive. And they started to make that case, but it really was only the tail end. And I felt like that particular issue wasn't something that the experts on stage interrogated very much. And that's where all my questions are. What about the risk side of the equation? Obviously, you have benefits and you have risks. Did we learn anything today about the anucanumab safety data that changes the perception of the drug as it relates to its efficacy? I think, yes, in exactly this context. We understood what the safety risks were with aducanumab and of Alzheimer's drugs of its type, where the most common, often serious side effect is a swelling of the brain that can lead to pain uh, and nausea and other effects. So we saw that in that high-dose group that Biogen says is, is the population you should really look at when deciding whether aducanumab works, about 35% of people experience that brain swelling. So that, with the seriousness of Alzheimer's, you, you can look at that however way you might like. I think, you know, Adam, to your point, the way the FDA looks at this is risk, benefit, and the, the trade-offs therein. So I think the question that I still have going forward and that I think the FDA will be digging into deeply is, is the benefit that we've seen enough to justify that risk? And so if you look again at, at the, the patient population that Biogen has isolated, you're talking about a benefit of about 0.5 points on a three-point scale of dementia, which is to say patients who got the drug did about 0.5 points better than the ones who got placebo. What does that 0.5 translate to in real life, clinically, for, for people who have Alzheimer's? I think that remains the key question. We didn't learn anything that, that suggests aducanumab is, is too dangerous or, or has safety risks we didn't know about. I think what we really have laid out before us now is the risk-benefit question in raw numbers. And what are the big mysteries remaining? Well, I really think it's going to be interrogating this, this how much do we believe in these supportive data. And it really does come down to that, but that's going to require a lot of digging into, you know, the nuts and bolts of this trial. So the other theme here, as we mentioned, there, there are two studies, one ostensibly positive, one positive, depending on whom you listen to. And to a lot of experts that we've all heard from in, in the weeks, I guess months since Biogen made this announcement... They say, wow, what an interesting hypothesis you've identified. What a great way to justify a third study to really isolate those patients you think will benefit, test it in a placebo-controlled fashion, and then you'll really know. And, you know, Matt, you had the chance to talk to Al Sandrock, who is the, the top scientist, the top doctor over at Biogen at the STAT Summit last month. How did he react to this concept of, you know, why don't you just run a third study and bring that to the FDA? 
Well, he said that Biogen could end up having to run a third study, and that I believe he said that he thought the company would do it. He also said a quote, which a lot of people have reacted to, which is that, you know, here's the decision that the FDA is going to have to make. Do we believe there is enough evidence to approve it now? Or do we ask the company to do another trial, wait five years, and how many people have to get demented in that time period? So Biogen's trying to walk a fine line of pushing on the need for a drug like this, but trying to be respectful of the FDA process. Their answer is, look, if we have to do another trial, that's going to take a long time do you really want to wait to have a drug? And a lot of the analyst debates about this, for people who are favoring it, mention all the political pressure that will be on the FDA in order to try and approve the medicine. And the flip side of that is, do you want to give a drug that stands a chance of not working? Do you want to create false hope? At no small economic cost, not only from the drug, but the fact that this drug has to be infused, which means that you'll have a lot of people kind of going into an outpatient setting with nurses you have to pay and other factors like that. Matt, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Talk soon. So as we mentioned before, our own Rebecca Robbins was in San Diego, which means she was in the room for the presentation that we've been talking about. Rebecca, what was it like among all the neuroscientists and and analysts listening in on Biogen's presentation? So I think a key thing here was that everyone was listening to a really in the weeds presentation. We were talking charts, uh, scatter plots that were really hard to interpret, even if you've been scouring this data for weeks, like many people in the room had. So this was not sort of an easy, clear presentation that had obvious takeaways. It was really messy. And I think the reaction in the room reflected that. Another thing that was interesting was that of the panel of experts that were on stage, there were no voices of skepticism. There were PIs from the studies as well as big backers of the controversial idea that the key to treating Alzheimer's is by clearing the brain of so-called amyloid plaques. So it was interesting that there was so much optimism on stage that I think didn't reflect the sentiment in the room. And then the other thing that was notable was that there was no Q&A from the audience at the end of the presentation. So I think that all contributed to make the entire thing feel very positive and didn't leave a lot of room for skepticism. So right after the presentation concluded, Rebecca grabbed a bunch of experts at CTAD to ask them to give a hot take on the presentation. So one of those experts was Dr. Jim Kupik. He was previously clinical head of Pfizer's neuroscience research group uh, in Cambridge, Mass. Pfizer, you'll remember, killed its neuroscience research program after failures in Alzheimer's and other conditions. Uh, And Jim is now chief medical officer at a biotech called Promise Neurosciences. So when I asked Jim about Biogen's presentation, he was very positive. He called the data exhilarating and said it validated the mechanism behind drugs meant to work like aducanumab does. But Jim also flagged a crucial caveat. The data set is limited in that the effect is limited. So that points to the need for a more sophisticated, effective therapy that truly is selective or maybe even more specific for the toxic amyloid species, which is a small ligamers. In the future, we will have biomarkers that will really facilitate uh, early clinical development so we can reach a go, no-go decision point much earlier than phase three. Uh, and this has been the case where we've seen this type of 
early drug becoming first available, having limitations in terms of either efficacy or safety. We've seen this in oncology. We've seen this in cardiovascular diseases. And the next generation of drugs are always superior in terms of efficacy and safety. And I'm sure that that will be the case here as the next generation of drugs are tested and become available. Another expert I talked to was Dr. Howard Fillett. He's chief science officer at the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation. And he's historically been on the more optimistic side when it comes to drugs that work like aducanumab. But when I asked him what he made of the data, I was a bit surprised that he sounded fairly skeptical. Here's what he had to say. All in all, I think that there was a signal both pharmacologically and clinically, but I think that um, they really need to do a third trial to confirm this. Um, and I, I don't know what FDA will do, but I expect that that might be one of the outcomes under consideration. Rebecca also talked to Brian Scorney, who is a biotech research analyst at the firm Robert Baird, and he's been easily one of the most bearish analysts out there when it comes to aducanumab's prospects. He wrote a fairly blistering research note in advance of the presentation that we're talking about saying that aducanumab, quote, is not getting approved absent a deus ex machina, and that the data we've seen are convincing only to, quote, the most ardent goop subscribers. So I asked Scorny, does he feel any differently now after hearing Biogen's presentation? I do not. I believe that the data was fairly consistent with what everyone's view on the data was. I also asked Scorny, did anything from Thursday's presentation change his thinking about the drug's prospects? The fact that the panelists, one after another, sort of endorsed the positive effects of the eMERGE study. I mean, I was a little bit surprised by that. And, and certainly, I mean, if the world has holds that view and I don't, then I'll wind up being wrong. And finally, I asked him what the biggest question he feels was unanswered today. I mean, I think for me, it's how are the regulators going to view the risk-reward balance here? What I thought was new on the negative side in the presentation was I thought there was a very, very clear exposure-related relationship in areaedemia and cerebral microhemorrhages. This is not a benign drug, and, and that's a fact. So I think the problem is you're dealing with a drug that factually has safety issues versus you know, unclear if there's any efficacy benefit at all. I personally don't believe that the signal uh, is there that there is an efficacy benefit, but I, but I think it's indisputable that you can't say with any certainty that there is either. So, so it's the certainty of a safety issue versus the uncertainty of an efficacy benefit. I think ultimately that's why I don't think it'll get approved. Now we want to talk about a story that features one-eyed sheep, poisonous plants, biotech hype, and patient empowerment. Stats' Eric Budman wrote a sweeping story about the hunt for new cancer medicines, one that bridges scientific history with the realities of the drug business. And Eric joins us today to talk about it. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Damien. Eric, your story centers around a young woman named Kayleen Sheeran from East Boston. She has a rare disease called Gorlin syndrome. Explain to us what it's like for her to have that condition. So Gorlin syndrome has effects all over the body, and those extend from skeletal abnormalities to sort of unusual growths. The most common are jaw cysts, which often cause a lot of pain and also cause drainage into the digestive tract, and also the uncontrollable proliferation of basal cell carcinomas, which are skin cancers. They're usually not thought of as especially serious because they can be removed fairly easily with a surgery, but when you're getting hundreds upon hundreds and you're getting surgery after surgery after surgery, there's really a, an exhaustion of the scalpel that sets in. And so one of the issues that comes with always needing 
surgeries is that it can become, A, hard to hold down a job when you need that much time off for medical care, but also it's very disfiguring. So there's a topical drug currently being developed to treat Gorlin syndrome by a company called Pellifarm. Uh, this drug has a fascinating history, which you trace back to one-eyed sheep in the American West. Uh, Give us, if you can, Eric, a brief version of where this drug came from. The science first emerged in this pretty weird way where in the 50s, these Basque shepherds in Idaho noticed that sheep were giving birth to one-eyed lambs. And they eventually called in some USDA scientists, one of whom actually camped with the sheep for three summers to figure out what was causing them to give birth to these deformed lambs. And they pinpointed a plant, which in turn was found to contain a chemical that plugged up the hedgehog pathway. The hedgehog pathway is really, for most of the body, only active when we're embryos. And then it's sort of put away under lock and key. And in Gorlin syndrome, part of the issue is that that locking mechanism is broken. And so there's this uncontrolled growth that continues after you're an embryo and that causes the development of all these cancers. And the thing that was causing deformities in lambs was that it was essentially plugging up these hedgehog genes. And so these scientists thought, oh, great, we have this molecule that can plug up this pathway that's running wild in cancer patients. And then they thought, what if this works in every tumor under the sun? So they started all these trials and pretty much you name the cancer, they tried it. And it, there's this great scene that you depict in the story, Eric, of, you know, these drug researchers going out into the field, into Utah, to literally dig up all of these plants to extract this chemical. Tell us about that. Many, many drug companies started looking into hedgehog pathway inhibitors. And one of them was Infinity, which is based in Cambridge. And they decided, you know what, let's go back to the roots, literally. And they went and got these plants that were causing these deformities in one-eyed sheep, and they set up an enormous agricultural operation in Manti LaSalle National Forest in Utah. At first, they started with picks and shovels, but then as they started clinical trials, they needed more and more roots. And so they started lugging farm equipment up into the mountains. And in the very short season that you have at 9,000 feet to dig, they dug up acres and acres and acres of cow cabbage or Veratrum californicum. So picking up where we left off on the drug development angle, Eric, you mentioned how many cancers various drug companies tried hedgehog inhibitors against, and a lot of those trials ended in disappointment, but not in Gorlin syndrome, where they've seen a lot of hope. So there's a moment in your story where Kayleen makes an ask of Pellifarm, the company developing a drug for her condition. And that ask was this, if I agree to volunteer to test the drug in your study, will you vow to always make it affordable for those participants? And I was curious, is there a precedent for this kind of request? And why don't we see drug companies who are often desperate for patients to enroll in their studies for, for rare diseases, why don't we see them making bargains like this more often? That's a really great question. And I think a lot of drug companies, including Pellifarm, think about this, although I don't think they think about it in quite as extreme a way as Kayleen was proposing. And so when she asked this question, the Pellifarm CEO said, well, whether you get the placebo or not, 
then you'll get a year of free medication after the trial. So if you get the placebo, you'll switch over. And then when she sort of pressed them with a friend of hers, they said, we might even extend that free drug all the way up to the moment when it hits the market. And the friend said, well, that's not actually enough because, you know, unlike most cancer treatments, these cancers continue for the rest of your life. This is a chronic cancer treatment for Gorlin syndrome. And I think Pelopharm and a lot of companies talk about copay assistance and all of these different programs. And Kayleen still worries that even paying a portion of this could be unaffordable for her and other patients. Story, you do describe the, you know, the financial toxicity, which is a term that people use, the financial toxicity of her treatments where she was taking a drug to treat Gorlin syndrome. And then, you know, for various reasons, her copay went up dramatically and she couldn't afford it. And she had to go off that drug. Right. Yeah. And in that case, you know, there was quite a bit of confusion, I think, on her part, which is understandable given the American health insurance system. And I think her yearly deductible was going up and she ended up having to stop taking a different hedgehog inhibitor, this one, a synthetic one from Genentech. And it may have been possible if she had pushed in slightly different ways to have kept taking that drug. But I think the episode to her made her feel like, wow, these drugs are very, very expensive a single tiny thing can change in your insurance situation, and suddenly your skin cancers pop back up. So what ultimately happened to Kayleen? On the one hand, she is really excited about this clinical trial because when you take this kind of drug orally, it has all sorts of terrible side effects. As she put it, I had terrible muscle cramps and lost all my hair, but it was the best time of my life when she was on these oral drugs. And so the idea of putting this on topically means that you might get the same effect, but without losing your hair, without the muscle cramps and the taste loss. So she's really excited about this trial. And at the same time, she feels like, hey, if I'm volunteering and giving you my body and my time, I want you to make some kind of guarantee that I'll be able to afford the medication afterwards. And she felt like the drug company was not giving her as satisfying an answer or as well thought out an answer as she would have liked. And so that really made her question whether she personally wanted to volunteer in this way, which could mean that she might have to then stop taking this drug. And I think she sort of viewed that as a kind of quiet protest in a certain way. I just have this question when I read an Eric Budman special report. Where on earth did you dig up this story? This story actually emerged from a different story. I went to the Gorlin Syndrome Alliance conference with a different researcher, thinking that I was writing a profile of that researcher. Uh, I mentioned that researcher in the story, but she's not the center of it. And I heard Kayleen stand up and ask a question, and I thought, whoa, what an amazing question. And coming from such a young person to such a powerful drug company founder. This is really interesting. I wonder how this is going to play out. And I came back to Boston, and the more I learned about the drug that Kayleen was asking about, 
the weirder it got and the more I became convinced that this had to be my story. So if you want to read Eric's story, which we highly recommend, you can find it on Stat's website as a two-part series titled The Medicine Hunters. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. does it for another episode of the read out loud thank you to heisen debonado who produced this week's episode matthew orr and Alyssa ambrose are our senior producers and rick burke is our executive producer and as always we'd love to hear from you tell us what you liked about this week's episode what you didn't like what you make of aducanumab's prospects and where you think stat should send eric budman next you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com and if you like what we do please do leave a review or a rating on apple podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts See you next week.